there's definitely surprises when certain relationships we thought were solid or certain I guess qualities that we've always assumed would do a certain thing to a person doesn't always work out that the same way and everyone's extremely individual. Hello and welcome to this Leaders Performance Podcast brought to you today by our main partners, Kaiser. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and I hope you are managing to stay safe and well wherever you are in the world. Coming up on today's episode is Dan McPartland, a strength and conditioning coach with the Great Britain cycling team. At the beginning, Dan and I spoke about teaching tools and the importance of building relationships with athletes. We then go on to discuss the ways in which athletes are changing both in their needs and interests around strength training. Later in the conversation, Dan also tells me about the ever-pressing challenge of data interpretation and management in an environment where athlete monitoring continues to evolve. And at this point, I want to thank our main partners, Kaiser, for helping to make this podcast possible. Now time for some leaders' housekeeping. By the time you hear this, there may still be time for the Leaders Performance Institute members amongst you to sign up for our performance series session on Thursday the 10th of February where performance specialist Meg Popovich will lead a discussion into making well-being a core component of your organisational culture. There's also another virtual roundtable on the 15th of February, which explores the theme of innovating and evolving approaches to training session design. And I want to give another push to our latest performance special report, titled Enhancing Your Environment, Nurturing Positive High-Performance Setups. In collaboration with our main partners, Kaiser, we examine high-performance environments through the lenses of belonging, well-being and diversity. With insights from English Premier League Brentford FC, Google, the Toronto Blue Jays and Premiership champions Harlequins, we detail how the values embraced in high-performance environments can provide the energy to drive performance. Download it now. Now that's almost all the admin I have for you, but remember, the leaders team are never more than an email or a call away if you need anything. And if you don't happen to be a Leaders Performance Institute member yet, then please check out leadersinsport.com forward slash performance to find out more. Now, on with the show where I began by asking Dan if there's such a thing as a typical day in his work. Yeah, I think it probably does. There is, there's some variation in it and it kind of depends what the overall kind of plan is or what stage of a, a year we're in, in in relation to a, a race season. But generally, we'll kind of the first meaningful uh, part of the day will be a gym session that starts at 10 o'clock. So that means I'll be in the gym from about half nine as people kind of start dripping in and doing their individual warm ups. Um, so my, my day before that is usually just catching up on emails and doing any last little bits of programming or organising the gym if it's not in the, the state we want it to be in. And then that, that gym session normally runs on till about 12 ish. And historically, we'll have most of our meetings over the kind of the, the, the next couple of hour period. So between between 12 and two or three. Um, is generally where we have most of our meetings because a lot of the training, like cycling training sessions, often happen in the afternoon. So uh, in the morning, obviously, myself and the other SNC coaches are uh, in the gym, and in the afternoon, the cycling coaches are by the by the various different tracks or courses that they coach on. So that that lunchtime period is where we mostly do our meetings, and in the afternoon, like I, I mentioned, is normally um, kind of cycling based training. So we'll spend a lot of time watching that and being around the athletes there. But this is also the time we, if we need to do anything that's kind of discipline specific or kind of admin related or writing programs, that'll be later on in the afternoon. And with all of that in mind, what are some of the training values and principles you live by in your work? 
So I think values for me is generally building really good relationships. I think it's super important to understand coaches, where, where they come from and their ideas um, on training, but also the, the environment they want to kind of produce. And that's the same with athletes, lots of different backgrounds and lots of, they have lots of different ideas on how to train. And I think it's kind of um, molding myself to that rather than trying to get people to do exactly what I want all the time. And what are some of the teaching tools you like to call upon beyond any you know, particular gym equipment or whatever it happens to be? What is it that you use to try and help you in your day-to-day work? Is it about linking the values that you described there to the work you're trying to do with the athlete? Yeah, so in terms of tools, if we're talking kind of like human, human tools, I think, again, it's, it's, a, it's a variation dependent on that athlete. I try and like I said, try and build a strong relationship with the athlete. So a lot of that is trying to discuss things outside of training or, or work with them as well. So that period I mentioned before from 9.30 onwards where they start dripping in and doing their warm-up, that's often a period of the time where I start with questions like, how are you? And leave that pretty open-ended to see where they go with it. And often it'll be, you know, I had a puncture in my car last night and it was an absolute nightmare. But I think that can really give you a lot of information about how that session's going to go or what's going on in their life, which might be affecting how they train. And obviously 99% of the time it ends up moving towards training type conversations. And I think it's knowing when to have those conversations with an individual or leave it in a group setting or when you need to be tactile, for example, do you need to put literally put an arm around someone or do you need to show them something specific? Yeah. So it is, is it ultimately about working out what's important to the athlete and then trying to feed that into the process of work that you do with them? Yeah, we have a bit of a saying here that it's, uh, and it doesn't always go exactly to plan, but happy heads equals fast legs. And that's that's kind of a, a bit of, I, I really believe in that. When you actually get down to working with the athletes in the gym or wherever it happens to be, what type of questions will you ask them? Ultimately, what sort of information are you looking for? Yeah. I think, like I said, uh, I briefly mentioned, I ask quite a lot of open-ended questions to see where they go. Ultimately, what I want to find out from them is how, how do they feel kind of in themselves? Are they happy or unhappy with how things are? Then how do they feel physically? And is there a specific area of the body that isn't feeling good or is feeling good? And I think kind of generally, if I've got both of those two things down, that gives me quite a lot of information. And obviously you can go pretty deep on both of those. And if we go down the route of, you know, let's say that someone isn't feeling particularly happy in themselves. Now, is that something off inside or outside of training? And if it's inside training, can I help you with it? Uh, And if it's outside training, do you want to just rant about it? And if it's inside training, is it something that I specifically am doing wrong or right? Or is it something that someone else in the building is doing wrong or right? And it's kind of setting them up to give you the answers and just continually kind of, I guess it's like interviewing someone, isn't it? Uh, you start off with a vague question and slowly go down a bit of a rabbit hole with them. Um, but that's generally what I'm looking for is, uh, are they physically and mentally in a good place? If they're not, why? Why is that? And how can I help? You've just identified my interviewing style there. So <laughs> <laughs> kudos for that one as well, Dan. Generally speaking, though, how has the emphasis changed for the athletes? Are they focusing on different things these days than they were perhaps two years ago, five years ago? And how has their understanding developed of S&C and I guess their own bodies? Yeah, I think there is a there has been a shift and maybe that's potentially just within my the way I work. Um, But I think 
that I think a few years ago there was a, there was a bigger emphasis on numbers and trying to hit specific targets and outcomes. Whereas I think now it's especially with those younger athletes, it's we spend a lot more time talking about trying to show specific behaviours and go through specific processes that will end, eventually end up with a good outcome, but not just focusing on the outcome itself. And what are some of the ways in which you seek to hold athletes accountable to their performance goals? I mean, is there an opportunity there for you as a coach to implement the things that you're trying to achieve as well? Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to hold people accountable, aside from this is your performance goal. If you don't meet it, this thing is going to happen to you, which might not be the, the best thing in the world. But what we try and do is have regular meetings where we go through, this is your kind of long-term career target. Let's use going to the Olympics or winning a medal at the Olympics as an example. This is how far you are away from it now. So this season, we're going to try and achieve this. And to achieve this, this is how we're going to train. And these are the things you need to do and get verbal agreement from them and then uh, follow that up and put it in their program. All those all those exact kind of uh, things we've described. And then if you've done that uh, and they agree to it, it's just gentle reminders along the way. So, you know, uh, let's say we've got an athlete who is very, very talented, but doesn't take the training side of things as seriously as other athletes. You know, we you, and they come in five minutes late. It, I'm never going to go. You, you can't come in the gym, you're five minutes late and be really strict with them. But I'll be like, you know, remember that meeting we had where, we said that you needed to be 100% motivated for these training sessions because that is what is ultimately going to get you to achieve this target. Do you think that's, that's what you've shown today by being late? And you'd hope they'd say no. <laughs> and that would that would change behaviours. So I think it's really simple as long as you're having those kind of clear lines in the sand and regular catch-ups where you're identifying what you want from them. And what about on a more basic level, I guess? You know, sometimes athletes will have bad days. We will all have bad days in, in our roles, in our jobs, wherever we happen to work. But how do you adapt to that, perhaps acknowledging that, while still working to challenge the athlete? Where does the line sit from your perspective? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's, there's a, I guess there's a difference between having a bad day and not putting effort in. And I think it's understanding what, what that difference is. And if someone's not putting the effort in and not trying, I'll, I'll call that out. I think I've heard, it's probably a bit of a cliche, but I've heard, um, I think it might have been Saracen's Rugby Club talk about effort errors and technical errors or something like that. And it's almost like, you know, if you make an error, that's that's not a bad thing we can learn from it. But if you're making an effort error and you're just not trying or, you haven't, or you've haven't, given up, then that is something we'll call you out on. So I will call out those things. But I think in Olympic sport, by the time you get to this level, it's very rare that athletes are just not trying. I think that it's there's going to be something else going on. And so it'll be, you know, this isn't going so well today. Why do we think that is? And often explain the concept of just, you know, you are having a bad day. Let's just try and get through it as best as we can. Do as much as we can. And like tomorrow's a new day. And then, you know, we take advantage of those days when you are feeling really, really good. And I wanted to ask you about the question of confidence, particularly confidence in the body. Athletes' confidence in their own body. What issues tend to come up when it comes to confidence and how can you work with an athlete to help build confidence in their skill sets? Yeah, I think, um, again, that's a really good question. Uh, interesting. I think the, that's a, I think it's a complicated one, building confidence. I think firstly showing confidence in myself and having a good rationale for why we're doing something is really, really key. If you show confidence, I think they'll, they'll take confidence from it. Obviously, if there's athletes who have broken down or let's say been injured from a movement previously, there might be a bit of hesitation. 
But I think it's building that up with time, doing that movement in a different way, maybe under less load and spending a lot of time doing it and building it back up will build confidence in that. And I think that normally seems to work. And then sometimes, being completely honest, sometimes there'll be... So, for example, in uh, cycling, we squat loads. Our our main strength lift is a squat. But there are uh, times when um, people get back pain from a squat or knee pain, especially when we um, cycle a lot. And they might have done this, yeah, they might have spent six years coming in, squatting heavy for a period of time, and then they get some sort of back injury or knee injury on the bike. And it's just something that they're like, look, this doesn't work for me. So we can adapt it. You know, there's loads of different ways that we can perform skills and do exercises as we can change it to something that is going to achieve largely the same adaptations, but they feel comfortable and confident with, because I agree with you, I think it's massive. And if they're confident in the gym, feeling strong, they'll be confident in their performance on on the track, which is what really, really matters. And I've been talking to S&C coaches in, in other sports and other disciplines, and I've been asking them about their pre-season work. Now, the concept of a pre-season is more relevant to some sports than others, of course. And I'm curious to ask you what passes for a pre-season in a cycling context. But then on top of that, what you feel cycling does well in a pre-season context when it comes to S&C? Yeah, we don't necessarily have a, a pre-season. We're probably even luckier than that in that we might our race season traditionally goes from, I don't know, March till September, October. And then we get everything in between is like an off season where we, we get to train pretty hard physically as a sport, whichever discipline you're in, they're all largely physical um, with slightly different physiological requirements, but they do all have large physiological requirements, which are really important. Um, I think what we do really, really well in cycling is, and I guess this is kind of kudos to the coaches here. They recognize that for example, for sprint cycling, Uh, or BMX strength and power is really really important so we need to spend some dedicated time to that Uh, and what the coaches here do really well is they go look this is the off-season period we don't have a race for five months we're going to leave it in the hands of you guys to design and develop the program and we're just going to do bits of cycling around that to make sure they can get the most out of their kind of strength development period. And in the work that you do with athletes potentially in those sort of down periods but also post event and competition as well how are you considering potential weaknesses or strengths in the work that they do in in their physical movement and to what extent can weaknesses be compensated for or covered or is it more of a strengths-based approach what does it look like for you yeah i think weaknesses the main way we assess weaknesses we do have kind of like testing and monitoring batteries that we do but we spend so much time with these athletes that a lot of it can be observed and there's a lot of like, like I mentioned earlier, the the, best, the most important thing is how quick they go uh, on the on, on their bike, and often the cycling coaches will identify a weakness, whether it's a weakness in the true sense of the word, and they need to be stronger, or whether it's a movement that potentially shows that there might be a weakness there, and then we'll go deeper into that, and we can watch them doing different exercises in the gym, or we can then go to kind of testing and monitoring on a force plate or something like that. On with the conversation in a moment, but first I want to give a shout out to our main partners, Kaiser, who make these podcasts possible. As many of you will know, Kaiser have been changing the world of fitness for over 40 years, and we're proud that leaders have now partnered with Kaiser for more than 10 years. More than 80% of the top sports teams in the world now train with Kaiser exercise equipment. 
If you would like to talk to Kaiser, please get in touch with a member of the leader's team, who will be delighted to introduce you to the right person. Alternatively, head to kaiser.com to find out more. And now, back to the conversation with Dan McPartland. Your testing and monitoring is getting ever more accurate, of course, but does your job ever have the capacity to still surprise you on a day-to-day basis? Yes. Yeah, yeah, massively. I think that testing and monitoring is getting ever more accurate, but the more accurate it gets, the more questions it seems to pose. Um, it, the, the more information we get, it almost makes it a bit murkier and actually makes it a little bit more complex. So, yeah, there's definitely surprises when certain relationships we thought were solid or certain I guess qualities that we've always assumed would do a certain thing to a person doesn't always work out that the same way and everyone's extremely individual and as a year wears on a season evolves if we call it the season obviously the needs and demands of the athlete will change and you have to make an adaptation to their program but how are decisions made regarding making a change to that program? What is the process that goes into that? What conversations do you have to have with the athlete or perhaps other coaches? Yeah, so I guess I described previously like our the off-season work where we are given quite a lot of free reign about uh, of the whole overall program of an athlete and we can largely kind of, you know, strength and power development is the key thing. We have uh, quite a lot of control over that and it's really, really good. That will flip. As we get to the race season, there's a point where that flips and the cycling coach takes over and we're just providing a kind of a service on the side once or twice a week. And so I guess during that first block, that's a real kind of collaborative conversation between myself, a physiologist and a coach. How are we going to develop strength? How's that going to work? What days of the week are we going to be training on and what type of training are we going to be, going to be doing on each days of those week? And then in that block, in the gym specifically, we'll spend a lot of time doing quite a lot of volume of work, trying to build muscle mass and having a big focus on strength. Then when that flips, it's still a collaborative conversation, but it's very much led by the coach and we're asked for input at certain times. And it's, I guess, a conversation example might be in our kind of winter block or the off season, I might be saying, look, I want to do a gym session on Monday morning uh, and then have a day off on the Tuesday so they can recover maximally from that session in the racing season the coach will be saying i'm doing track on monday uh, we can squeeze gym in on a wednesday that's the only time period that we've got in the week where you're able to do gym and i might i'd, I'd happily be able to challenge that but they might say no <laughs> and then as in terms of gym specifics as we get into that in season block the volume comes right down we're basically doing the minimum required work to maintain that level of strength and hopefully increase it slightly. But with the intensity of the racing, sometimes it's not possible. You mentioned some of the the pushback that you may get there because there's a lot of people involved in the performance equation. But how do you as a practitioner frame that and then move on? Yeah, so I think um, it's just about asking good questions. So why have we decided to do this? Um, And if you disagree with the reason, just giving your rationale for why you might do something else or giving different options, I think... Someone I work with quite closely is often described it as when we go into a race season, we might be giving the coach like a menu of different uh, options for the best kind of physical performance. And they'll probably choose one of those options uh, potentially. And often over time, you know, I've been working here for four years now and spend that whole time working with some coaches. They kind of, we have a really good working relationship already. We've got a kind of a set way to schedule certain periods of the year there's definitely surprises when 
certain relationships we thought were solid or certain, I guess, qualities that we've always assumed would do a certain thing to a person doesn't always work out that the same way and everyone's extremely individual. Our week leading into a race is largely similar and it might change a little bit and the conversation might be something like, you know, this athlete said that, I don't know, when they race on a Saturday and they do gym on Wednesday, they feel like that might be slightly better because of this, this and this. What do you think? Should we try it, you know, on this lesser race first and see how they feel? Things like that. And if there was one thing you could change about S&C work in cycling, what would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. One thing I could change. I think for me, the, the kind of the, the next step is being able to m- measure changes in musculature. So muscle morphology, how are we structurally changing the muscle with training? That's, that's possible to do, but it's something that's quite expensive and labor intensive and we don't have the capability to do that just yet. But that would, I'm hoping would give us more the information we need on the specific adaptations we're creating. So in light of your answer there, Dan, where do you think cycling will be from an S&C perspective in, say, five years' time? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it will be close to there. I think, I guess this is a bit of an answer to your previous question as well, but previously there's been such a reliance on how much do you squat, especially in the sprint disciplines. And I think that whilst that's a really good tool for developing strength, it's not necessarily the best measure of how, how quick someone's going to be able to go on the bike or is their musculature developed in the right way to go fast on the bike. And so I think those measurement tools will be kind of the next step. And speaking of yourself personally as a practitioner, what do you regard as your biggest strength? I think my biggest strength is probably the relationship building that we discussed earlier. Uh, building trust with athletes and coaches and being able to speak my mind without it coming across as too challenging or obnoxious or anything like that. And what strength do you admire most in others? Is that a roundabout way of asking what's my weakness? <laughs> um, because that's a good one. I guess, yeah, naturally I admire in others the things that I'm not great at. And I think that the real analytical data side of things, when done really well, can be really impactful. And that's something that I probably don't do the best. And what do you believe is the key to strong teamwork? I'm probably going to end up repeating myself a little bit here, but I think that just the ability to challenge people without it becoming, feeling like an attack or feeling like you're trying to one-up someone or get your way. I think it's really difficult to actually genuinely get that in, in a working environment. And there's small groups where I work with and it's pretty strong and we can have really honest conversations with each other, but it's, it, it takes a while to get there. And finally, how will you look to get stronger in your role? Yeah, for me, it's the next steps for me is trying to get better at that kind of the analytical side of things, the data side of things and uh, looking at things through a more scientific lens. Um, there's always this trade-off between applied work and academic research. And I feel like blending the two is is the way forward for strength and conditioning. So that's what I'm going to focus myself for the next few years. Dan, thank you very much for your time today. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you.